All right, all right. But um, typically what we like to do on Sunday mornings is we just kind of have one passage of scripture that we really kind of look at and dig in and unpack. Today's message will be a little different. Um, we're going to be looking at a lot of different passages, both Old and New Testament. And so it may be a little difficult for you to follow along in your Bible, but all the verses will be on the screen. If you got a bulletin when you came in, I think we ran out, which is a great problem, but sorry for those who came in late. But if you got a bulletin, we'll have all the scripture references on that back note sheet, and you can kind of go back and look those up on your own this week, but we'll be looking at a lot of different passages today as we begin unpacking our vision statement. Now, here's our vision statement for who we are as a church. At Garden Oaks, we say that we are a family inviting others into the life-giving story of Jesus. That's who we are. What, that's what we want this church to be about, that we are a family inviting others into the life-giving story of Jesus. So today, we're going to just be looking at that first part that says, we are a family, we're going to talk about how the church is a family. Now, I say that, and immediately, a lot of you are rightly skeptical, because it's kind of like a trendy, sort of cool corporate thing to just like label something as a family nowadays, right? Like, you go to Olive Garden, like, oh, when you're here, you're family, and it's like, no, you're not, like, right? And, and it's just kind of annoying. Or like if you were to work for some sort of like, you know, hipster tech startup company, they're like, oh, well, we're a family here, and you're not. What they mean by that is we're going to make you work like 140 hours a week. You're never going to see your real family, but we're going to have a ping pong table in the break room, and we'll feed you tacos on Friday, so let's just call it family and call it a day. But you're like, this isn't really a family. So when we say the church is a family, you're probably like, but is it really? Like, come on, that's a nice metaphor. But no, what we're going to see today is that it is far more than just a metaphor. It is far more than just some cliche thing we say, but the church of Jesus truly is a family. Now, before we get there, um, did any of you guys see Marie Kondo just blow the internet up this week? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, like three of you saw this. If you don't know who Marie Kondo is, um, she is a organization consultant. I didn't know that was a thing, but it's a thing. And so her whole thing was she would teach you how to stay organized and how to keep your house or how to keep your living space nice, neat, clean, and tidy. And so she got kind of famous. She wrote a book called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. That again, the whole premise was to teach you how to keep your house clean and tidy. And then that book was successful, so um, Netflix paid her a bunch of money to do this incredibly successful show that was called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. And again, the entire shtick, her entire thing was telling you how to keep your living space clean and tidy. So she wrote books, she made TV shows, she was nominated for Emmy Awards all around keeping your house tidy. And this week she did an interview that just blew the internet up because in this interview, she said, actually, now that I have three young kids, my house is a mess, and I've given up on tidying up. <laughs> right? The queen of tidying up. That was the whole thing. That was the name of the show. She says, yeah, I've kind of given up on that now that I have three young kids. At which point, every American family with young kids breathed a sigh of relief and felt normal again. Right? But when, when I saw that, I was reminded of something that we all intuitively realize, we all understand, but I think we feel bad admitting sometimes. And that is the reality that family is a burden, right? Family is incredibly inconvenient, isn't it? Let's just be real. Like, you can admit that. Family is a burden. As your family grows, your burdens grow along with it. Like, Chris and I, we've got four kids. This month, um, baseball is starting back up for two of our boys. Um, our oldest daughter decided she wanted to do soccer this year for the first time, and then she guilted me into coaching her team, even though I have no idea what I'm doing. So now I'm coaching an under-11 youth soccer team. Um, our other daughter's in drum lessons, she's, and then she's wanting to get into like competitive swimming on that. So our schedule is about to just become insane again. And on top of all that, like they come home with homework. We've got to somehow feed them dinner, and like hopefully a dinner that won't like give them diabetes or kill them in three years. Like some sort of like real food, we've got to try a way to, to get to them. And then with four young kids, like their junk is just everywhere all over our home. So to be just completely transparent with you, like there are days where I will sit around and my fantasies, my daydreams are just counting down the days until we can send them all to college and Christy and I are empty nesters and it's quiet in the house, it's clean, like you can go to the bathroom without somebody bothering you, 
Nobody's waking you up early on a Saturday morning. Like, that just sounds so nice and incredible. Like, as our family grew, the challenges and the burdens infinitely grew along with it. But here's the other side of that coin. While family's a burden, and while it's difficult, and while it's a challenge, it is absolutely the greatest thing in the world. It is the biggest blessing in the world. It's so fulfilling and it's so transformational. Like me, at my core, I tend to be a very selfish, self-centered person. And so as our family grows, I I had to kind of learn how to crucify that selfishness and that self-centeredness for the sake of my family. So what I've learned is while family is a burden, while it's hard, while it's challenging, it is absolutely necessary and it is absolutely good. And that same reality is true as a church family, right? If you are part of a church family, it's a burden, isn't it? It's hard. It is challenging at times. It brings all sorts of tensions with it, but at the same time, it is good and it is necessary. And so I want us to this morning see why it's necessary that we are a family as the church. And then on a more basic level, I want us to just see fundamentally why we even say the church is a family. So to understand why we believe the church is a family, we've got to start way earlier than the church. We've got to actually start with God. To understand why the church is a family, we have to start with the God of the universe. And when we open the pages of scripture and we, be able to, we begin to learn about the God of the universe and who he is, we not only learn some things about God, but we also learn some things about ourselves. So if you got a bulletin, there's that note sheet on the back. If you wanna follow along and take notes, here's the first thing we're gonna see. What we're gonna see as we open scripture is that we were designed for relationship. We are designed for relationships. So skip that Genesis 2 passage and we're gonna start in Genesis 1 and then we'll come back. This is what it says, the opening pages of scripture. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. Then God said, let there be light and then there was light. So in this passage, we see the doctrine that is called the Trinity. It's really confusing, it's impossible to fully understand, but it's this biblical doctrine that shows us that there is only one God, but that one God exists in three distinct but unified persons. And so in verse one, we see God the Father. Because in the beginning was God that's referencing God the Father. And then in verse two, we see the spirit of God hovering over the water. So there's the spirit of God. And then in verse three, it says, and then God said, we see the word of God going forth and being spoken. And it's still kind of mysterious here, but as we continue in scripture and as we get into the New Testament, the gospel of John reveals to us that the word of God is the son of God. That that spoken word of God represents Jesus, the son of God. So understand that even long before creation, God existed in three distinct persons, a father, a son, and a spirit. That is God's core identity. Right, if you're here with us a couple months ago in our series on the Holy Spirit, we talked about that. How long before creation, long before God was a creator, which he is a creator, but even before he was a creator, And long before he was a savior, and he is a savior, but long before that, he was a father loving a son through a spirit. So if you're taking notes, here's what we learn from that. For all eternity, God has existed in relationship. It's the second thing on your note sheet. For all eternity, God has existed in relationship. He's been a father in relationship with a son, in relationship with a spirit. This eternal relational love, notice this is so important, this eternal relational love has existed for all eternity. So God, in his very nature of who he is, he is a God of relationship. It's at the identity of who he is. Again, God didn't become a father when he created us. God has always been a father, Loving a son through a spirit. And so we move forward in the story of Genesis and it's 
as an outpouring, as an overflow of this eternal love that God then creates the world. But look at how God creates humanity when he creates them. Genesis 1, verse 26. It says, then God said, let us, there's that Trinity language of Father, Son, and Spirit. God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So again, if you're taking notes, what we learned there is that God created us in his image and likeness. Listen, as human beings, as a human, you were made in the image of a eternal relational God. Now that has so many implications for us today. That means so many different things. But one of the most foundational and one of the most basic, but one of the most important things that that means is that since we were created in the image and likeness of this relational God, we are created for relationship. We are designed for relationship. Hardwired into your DNA as a human being is this need to have deep, meaningful relationships. And if you think I'm kind of stretching here, the story is only going to go on to confirm that because you flip the page and in the next chapter of scripture, we see that God has created Adam, this first human being. But at first, there were no other human beings for Adam to be in relationship with. He was relationally alone, humanly speaking. Now, here's what you gotta understand before we read this next verse. At the time of this next verse we're gonna read, the fall has not happened. So sin has not yet entered the human race, right? And up until this point, when God made something, everything he made and everything he would look at, he would examine it and he'd say, that's good. He would make something and say, that's good. He would make something and say, that's good. And in Genesis 2, 18, the story comes to a screeching halt when for the first time, even before sin, God looks at something and God says, hold on a second, that's not good. Look at this verse with me, Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for what? Read it with me. For the man to be alone. God says it is not good for the man to be alone. And again, this is before sin even enters the picture. Even in paradise, even in the perfect garden paradise, God says, no, 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 this isn't gonna work. This is not good. And remember, was the man technically alone? No. There are all the animals. And beyond that, he had relationship with God at that point. But even living in this perfect garden paradise, even having relationship with God, God says, no, no, the fact that he has no other human relationships, this isn't going to work. It's not good for him to be alone. So it goes on and God creates Eve, the first woman, so the man can be in relationship. And so we see clearly in Genesis, as human beings, at the core of our DNA, we are designed for relationships. Listen, it doesn't matter if you're shy. It doesn't matter if you're an introvert. I'm an introvert. I get it. If you're a human and you're here, so you are. As a human being, whether you're shy, whether you're introverted, whatever your personality is, you are designed to be in relationship. There is a neuroscientist out of UCLA. Um, his name is Dr. Alan Shore, S-C-H-O-R-E, and I'm giving you the name so that if you're kind of skeptical, you can look him up on your own and, and you can confirm that what I'm telling you is scientifically true and I'm not making it up to kind of prove my point that I had coming in. And Alan Shore, he's a neuroscientist at UCLA. He is called the Einstein of neuroscience. So he's done all sorts of work <clears throat> and research on things like attachment theory and how relationships actually make us grow as human beings. And here is what he says. Here is his conclusion. He says, and I quote, says, there is something necessary that the human brain needs. Notice his language there. Not that the human brain desires, not that the human brain prefers, not even that the human brain craves. The language he chose is there is something that the human brain needs in terms of other human contact for it 
to grow. And so really the summary of his work, he talks about how science has proven that our brains run on joy, that joy is basically fuel to help your brain grow and why that is so important, especially in infancy. But again, what he says that is now scientifically observable and true is that our ability to experience joy comes from joy-filled relationships. That it is joy-filled relationships that creates the capacity in your brain to even experience joy. That apart from relationships, you cannot experience joy in life. And again, he's, he's not a Christian. He's not trying to prove the Bible. This is what he has scientifically observed. And so what he says is that at the most fundamental level, the way that our brains find joy is primarily by being in proximity with other human beings who are happy to be around us. I know that sounds incredibly simple, but that's his conclusion. That when you are in the presence, and he even says like not, not on a screen because our brains know the difference, but when you are in the physical proximity of other human beings, and you know that they are glad to be with you, that's when you most feel joy. Now again, intuitively, I think you know that's true, right? Because if you've ever um, gone out of town for a few days when you had young kids, and then you come back home and you've been traveling and you're you know, just completely wiped out and exhausted, right? And all you wanna do is go crawl in your bed, but when you walk in the door and those kids run up to you and they scream, mommy or daddy, and they reach their arms out for you to grab them, even though you're completely exhausted, what do you feel? You feel joy. And that confirms what he says, because your kids are glad to be in your presence. You know, to be honest, I've never been a dog person. Like, I've never, I mean, dogs are fine, whatever, but I've never wanted one, right? I had dogs, I've been there, done that. But they're expensive, they smell, their hair gets everywhere. It's like, I've just never understood dog people. But after reading this, it's like, okay, it makes sense. I get it, right? Because if you got a dog, whether you are gone for 10 minutes or 10 hours, when you come back home, that dog is happy to see you. It is thrilled to be back in your physical presence. And what does that do for you? It gives you joy. That's why some of you crazy people have dogs and spend so much money on them. Because scientifically, something's happening. It is sparking joy in your brain. So listen, what, what Genesis is showing us here about how we are designed for relationship, it, it's true. If you're, if you're a skeptic, if you're not yet a Christian and you don't believe the Bible is the word of God like we do, that, that's okay, like you're still welcome here. But if you don't wanna take the Bible's word for, for it, then just call it a law of nature. But whatever you wanna call it, it's scientifically and observably true that as human beings, we are hardwired for relationships. Without deep, meaningful relationships, you cannot survive and thrive in life. And so as Christians who believe the Bible is God's word, we just know that this observably scientific reality comes from the fact that our God is a relational God who created us in his image. So as human beings, we are designed for relationship. Now, if you're taking notes, here's the next thing, and here's where the church begins to fit into the picture. What we see as we go on in Scripture is that the church is the family of God, and in the church, we find eternal relationships. What we're going to see is the church is the family of God, and within the church, we find eternal relationships. God created us. He designed us for deep, meaningful relationships and then he creates the church as a means for us to discover those relationships. So Ephesians 2, 19, Paul here in the New Testament, he's writing to Gentiles, that just means non-Jewish people, and what he's doing is he's, he's writing to these Gentiles who up until that point of history, they were relationally outside of the family of God. They weren't part of the people of God. But look at what Paul says to them. Look at what he says happened the moment they placed their faith in Jesus. Ephesians 2.19. Paul says, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. He's saying you're now no longer relationally on the outside. He says that you are now citizens 
along with God's holy people, and what does the language that he uses? He says, you are now members of what? God's family. He says, now you are members of God's family. He says that to these people, these Christians living in the city of Ephesus, he says, hey, all you Jewish Christians, and now all you Gentile Christians, because of Jesus, you are now in the same family. What Paul is reminding them of is that when God saves us through faith in Christ, when God saves us, he does not only bring us into relationship with himself, which he absolutely does, but he also brings us into relationship with one another. That when we enter into relationship with God as a father, we immediately have relationship with brothers and sisters. Now, Real quick, before we move on and unpack the implications for us at Garden Oaks, because I wanna show you some other passages in scripture because I just wanna make sure I build the case and prove to you that I'm not just taking one verse in Ephesians out of context and kind of proof texting to try to prove the point that I already came up with. I wanna show you that this thread and this theme is found all across scripture, across various authors in scripture. Right, so, so think back to Adam in Genesis, the, the passage that we just looked at. When Adam was alone, and it was not good, it was not good that he was relationally alone, what did God give him? A family. He gave him a family. He gave him a wife. And together they had children. They had a family. Later in Genesis, God makes a covenant, a promise with this guy named Abraham, and, and he promises to bless Abraham and bless the world through Abraham, and the ultimate fulfillment of that promise was that through Abraham, God would bring Jesus, the savior of the world. But when God makes this covenant with Abraham, if you know the story, what did God promise Abraham? A family. He promised him a son. When God made this promise, Abraham and his wife were well past childbearing years. It was not scientifically or biologically possible for them. But God comes and says, no, I'm promising you a son. You will have a son. And that son will have a son. And you will have descendants that are as numerous as the stars in the sky. God promised Abraham not a metaphorical family, but a real, tangible, blood family that was the promise that God made to Abraham. But then we get to the New Testament, and Paul, in Galatians 3, he's commenting on that. He says something incredibly interesting. He's talking about this very real, tangible, not metaphorical, but real blood family. And look at what Paul says about this family of Abraham in Galatians 3, 6. He says, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. And then listen to this. The real children of Abraham are those who put their faith in God. The real children, the real family of Abraham are those who put their faith in God. And it's this family language. Let me give you a couple more real quick and then we'll move on. Paul, Romans 12, 10. Paul says, love each other with genuine affection. If you look in the original language, that term genuine affection, the word that Paul used is literally translated brotherly love. Paul says, love one another. He's writing to the church, by the way. He's writing to the local church in the city of Rome. He says, love one another with brotherly love, with a familial kind of love. He doesn't say, love each other as close friends. There were words in Paul's language if he wanted to say that, but he doesn't choose those words. He chooses a word that means familial love. He said, as the church, you need to be loving one another as if you were in the same family. John, 1 John 3, 1, this is what he says. He says, see how very much our Father, familial language, loves us, for he calls us his children, and that's what we are, or family language. And then in the Gospel of John, in John 1, 12, he writes, but all who believed in him, that's talking about believed in Jesus and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Right, this family language is all throughout Scripture. Let me show you one more. Even Jesus himself does this. Jesus in Matthew 12, 47. It says, someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. But listen to this. But Jesus asked, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? 
And then he pointed to his disciples and he said, look, these are my mother and these are my brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus says, it's those who follow me. That is my true family. So this thread of the church, of followers of Christ being united as family. Again, we see this thread all throughout scripture. And as I mentioned earlier, I believe it's a very real sort of family. It's not some soft, metaphorical, corporate olive garden when you're here, your family, cliche sort of way. It is just as real as a blood family. Listen, if you're skeptical of that, and you say, okay, well, like, like, I get the metaphor, it's a nice metaphor, it gives us warm fuzzies inside, but no, it's just, it's just a metaphor, John. Like, it, when the Bible says that the church is a family, it's not, it's not a real family because we're not related by blood. If that's your response, let me just offer two responses to you. First of all, yes, we are related by blood. It's just not our blood, it's the blood of Jesus. So we absolutely are, as a church, a blood-related family. But the second response would be, if you think that, and I don't mean this to to knock you or anything, I'm just saying, if that's your response, then I probably can assume about you that you have never personally experienced adoption in your family, right? Because if you've experienced adoption, like I I have an adopted daughter. I remember a couple years ago, I was sitting in a Bible study that I was leading, and we were talking about how Jesus um, fulfills the prophecy that the Messiah would be a descendant of King David. And so somebody in the Bible study, they're like, well, how can that be? That can't be true because Joseph was a descendant of David, not Mary. And uh, Joseph wasn't the biological father of Jesus. So Jesus wasn't really a descendant of King David because Joseph was not her real father. And I tell you, when this guy said this, I wanted to jump across the room and tear this guy's head off his body. The only reason I didn't had nothing to do with the fact that I was the pastor leading the Bible study. I didn't care about that. Like, that didn't bother me. The only reason I didn't is because the man who said this was a 300-pound power lifter who, with his bare hands, could literally have ripped my head off my body. But I, I, was, I was furious because, listen, you can't tell me that my adopted daughter is any less part of my family than my biological children. In fact, I think in some ways my adopted daughter is even more real part of our family than our biological children. Because my biological children, I didn't choose them, right? I didn't pick them. Christy and I, we, you know, we just shared our love and our affection with each other, and uh, then nine months later, they appeared. And it's like, who are you? Where did you come from, kid? Like, uh, they just showed up. But to adopt somebody, you, you, no, you, have, to, you have to go out of your way. You have to say, no, I choose you. I want you. I'm making a decision that from now on, you are in this family forever. And so what the Bible shows us is that through the blood of Jesus, we are adopted into this very real family that is called the church. And through the church, we find these deep, meaningful relationships that we were created to experience. Now, I know you're getting hungry, so we'll start to land the plane here. So I think scripture is clear that as a church, as both the global capital C church and as the local small C church, we are a family. Like, again, that's not a phrase, it's not a cliche, it's not a choice, it's non-negotiable, we just are a family. It's not we can be a family, it's not we should try to be a family. No, no, biblically, we're a family. Through Christ's blood, he makes us one, he brings us into the family of God. That has happened, that is a fact. The thing, though, that is negotiable, the thing that can change, the thing that is up for debate is will we be a healthy family or not? Through the blood of Christ, we're a family. Christ has done that work. It's just are we gonna act like a family and are we gonna act like a healthy family? Uh, Because as, as too many of us have experienced in this broken world, just because you're part of a family, that doesn't mean it's good, does it? 
that doesn't mean it's healthy. There's abuse. There are all, there's all sorts of evil, tragic things that can happen within a family. And so as a church, we are a family. Again, that's why our vision statement says we are a family inviting others. It doesn't say we strive to be a family or we want to be a family. No, we are a family because God has made us a family. Just what's left up to us is will we be a healthy family? And so again, there are a thousand different traits and markers of what a healthy family is or what a healthy family should be. But just as we close, I wanna give you three that I think stand out to me. And these are three that for us here at Garden Oaks, these are gonna matter. And these are gonna take priority. And these are going to have to be things that mark us if we are going to be a healthy family. So three traits of a healthy family. The first is that in healthy families, conflict is resolved. In healthy families, conflict is resolved. We all know that at times in families, there is going to be conflict. In families, there is going to be disagreements. There's gonna be times in our families where our family members do things to hurt us. But here's the reality. Conflict doesn't tear families apart. Conflict doesn't break families apart. It's only unresolved conflict that breaks families apart. Only unresolved conflict tears families apart. Conflict is not a bad thing. Unresolved conflict is a terrible thing. And so all of our human families, we know this, right? All of our human families have conflict, but it's when we let that conflict go unresolved, it's when we let it fester, it's when infection sets in, then that the family starts to split apart. And again, if the church is a family, we have to understand going in, there's gonna be conflict, right? And if you've been part of a church longer than a day, you've experienced that, haven't you? And again, let me just, as a side note, um, there is conflict and then there are things like abuse. We're not talking about abuse here, right? Like uh, abuse um, doesn't get resolved. You don't stick around and can, no, no, an abuse, you, you go, you be safe. So that, that's not what we're talking about. Don't take this wrong. But in church, there'll be conflict, right? Like we'll offend one another. We will, we will have a bad day and we'll say things that hurt one another's feelings. We'll, we'll make promises that we don't keep to one another. Hey, like as the pastor, I'm gonna let you down. I'm going to offend you. Some of you are like, Pastor, you said something in this sermon that already offended me today. I'm sorry. Like, I, I'm gonna make a promise to you that I'm gonna inadvertently not keep. We are, we are going to experience conflict, and that's normal, that's natural, that's okay. What's not okay is for us to leave conflict unresolved. That's why one of the commands of Scripture, one of the, com- or one of the commands of the New Testament for the church is to forgive one another. And in that command, it's interesting, it doesn't say, hey, if you hurt one another, if you offend one another, then forgive one another. It just says, forgive one another. It assumes that we're gonna offend one another. And so it assumes that we're gonna make a practice of having to forgive one another. Jesus, as he's teaching one day, he says, hey, if you go to the temple and you go to bring an offering to the altar and you're sitting there and you're, you're giving your offering at the altar, but then you remember, oh, uh-oh, you know, uh, you know, me and James kind of got into it last week and you know, he, he cursed me out and then I took a swing on him and we, we kind of had this blow up and we haven't made it right. Jesus says, leave the offering. He says, forget the offering for a minute. He says, go and be reconciled to your brother. Go and work it out. Go get back on the same page relationally. And then, after you've reconciled with your brother, then you can come back to your offering on the altar. What Jesus is saying, that this is so important, Jesus is saying that our worship before God will be hindered if conflict is not resolved relationally. That's, that is huge. That when we go through life, and again, sometimes um, resolution involves two people. So I'm talking about when you've done all you can do. But Jesus is saying, when you haven't done all you can do to resolve conflict, he says, your worship before God is even hindered. And so if we wanna be a a, a church, a family that is worshiping, as scripture says, in spirit and in truth, we need to be a family where conflict is resolved. The second trait of a healthy family is, is healthy families' facades are removed. And a healthy family, facades are removed. 
right? When, when you are around your family, that should be a place where it is safe for you to be vulnerable and be who you really are. Everywhere else you go in this world, you walk around with this little mask on, don't you? You walk around kind of putting on a facade because you're worried if the world saw you for who you really were, would they love you and would they accept you? But a healthy family should be the place where you can take off that mask and let go of the facade knowing that you will be loved and accepted. Like when I go home, you know what I do? I go to my closet and in my drawer, I've got these big, baggy, oversized flannel Ninja Turtle pajamas. They're the ugliest things in the world, but they're so comfortable, and because I love Ninja Turtles as a kid, they've got this like nostalgia factor. So I go home and I put on those Ninja Turtle pajamas, and I'll grab a t-shirt out of my drawer, like I'll get the t-shirt that my kids got me for Father's Day last year, where in big, bold letters across the front, it says, world's best farter. And then underneath in small letters, they have to look really close to read, it says, I mean father. Right? I'll get my Ninja Turtle flannel PJ pants and my world's best farter shirt and I'll put it on and when I come out, my kids or my wife don't look at me like, dude, what's wrong with you? What are you wearing, man? What, what's the problem? Like, Go back and try again. No, they love me and accept me for who I am. Here's the deal. I'm not wearing that to a job interview. Now, not because I wouldn't want to, I would absolutely want to, because it's comfortable. But I'm not wearing that to a job interview because I'm afraid if I do, they will judge me based on that. I'm afraid that they will think differently of me, but inside my home, I don't have to put on the mask, I don't have to wear the facade, I can wear the comfy PJ pants and be who I really am because I know that they will love me and accept me. And that's how the family of the church should be that we love one another and we accept one another for who we really are. Now, again, another side note. I'm not at all saying, so don't hear this, I'm not at all saying that within the church we just gloss over and accept each other's sin. That's not what I'm saying. So like the dude who's like cheating on his spouse, he says, well, that's just who I am. I'm not saying, we say, okay, well, that's who you are. You're good to go. What? No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. Paul in 1 Corinthians, he, he addresses that. But what I am saying is that within this family, it should be the safe place, the safest place in the world to take off the mask, to let down the facade and say, hey, here's who I am. Here's my successes and here's my failures. Here is all of it. Here's who I am, knowing that since we are family, we will still be loved and accepted. Family is the one place where you can take off that facade and still feel safe, and that's how the church should be. And then last but not least, and if you ever heard anything else today, I want you to hear this. In a healthy family, time is invested. In a healthy family, time is invested. So if I never spent time with my wife or with my kids, are we still family? My aunt, not, not you know, rhetorical. Are we still family? Yes. That's still my wife. You know, she could leave me, she could divorce me, but like, and those are still my kids. Those are always gonna be my kids. We're always going to be family. But if I don't spend time with them, are we gonna be a healthy family? Absolutely not. It's the same in the church. The only way that we can be a healthy family is when we spend time with one another. It's when we're involved in each other's real lives not just showing up here on a Sunday morning, shaking a hand, waving from the other side of the room, saying, hey, how was your week? It was good. Oh, how about yours? It was good. Okay, great. You know, we'll see you next Sunday. We'll do it all again. No, 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 no. We're only a healthy family when we invest our time in one another's lives. Again, remember back to the beginning. We are designed for deep, meaningful relationships. You cannot experience joy apart from deep, meaningful relationships. And listen, this time here on Sunday mornings is critically important, so much so that scripture says that we should not forsake this time, that we should prioritize this time where the whole body, the whole church comes together to open the scriptures together, to pray together, to sing together, that what happens here is critically important. 
But as you know and I know, deep, meaningful relationship can't happen here in an hour on Sunday morning. It just cannot happen. We're not even a big church, relatively speaking. But even in, as a smaller church, you can slip in after the first song. You can sit there without ever being in a relationship. You can slip out as soon as the service is over and kind of hide. And that's easy. That's natural. That's normal. I get the desire to do that. But again, you're not going to be experiencing deep, meaningful relationship when you do that. And if you're not experiencing deep, meaningful relationship, you're not going to have the kind of joy, joy-filled life that God created you to experience. And so for us as a church, our response to that, our answer of, well, how do we experience deep, meaningful relationships as a church family since that can't happen here in an hour-long service on Sunday morning? How do we do that? Our answer to that is small groups. The answer, the solution is small groups. And so at its most basic level, what a small group is, is a small group of people, as I'm sure you could guess. And when we say small, we want it to be small. Ideally, like 8, 10, 12 people max. Why? Because look at Jesus. Jesus had a lot of disciples. When we talk about the disciples, Jesus had way more than 12 disciples. He had a ton of disciples. There were many that followed Jesus' disciples during his ministry. But he had this inner circle of 12 that he intentionally invested in, that he intentionally spent more time with than others to pour relationally into. Right? And so a small group, it's a, it's a small group of people of six or eight or 10 or 12 people where you get together, invest time together in Christ-centered relationships to grow relationally. So listen, we're gonna talk in, in a minute about some small groups that we're starting and how we want you to be a part of them, but I just wanna be completely transparent with you. In these small groups, scripture will be our guide. Scripture is going to be open. Scripture is going to be discussed. And what we'll be doing most of the time is taking the scriptures we look at here on Sunday morning and just having conversations about how we can each apply those scriptures to our life. So they're absolutely centered in scripture. But hear me, the purpose of small groups as we are launching them is not a Bible trivia time. It's not for you to grow in your knowledge of Scripture, and growing in knowledge of Scripture is great and necessary, and you need to be growing in your knowledge of Scripture. It's just that what we're doing in small groups, that's not the purpose. The main first purpose is to grow in Christ-centered relationships. Because again, without those, you are missing out on the joy that God designed you to experience without those relationships you are missing out on something that God wants you to experience so on a practical level what we want you to do is there's this QR code here on the screen it's on the back of the bulletin if you have a smartphone what you can do is pull up the smartphone if you just zoom in on that there will be a little link you click on the link and it will take you to an interest form and you'll be able to put your information in, and then what we're going to do, we want as a staff, we're gonna be following up with you this week, kind of talking to you, just having a conversation about what you are looking for in a group, what kind of group you wanna plug into and be part of so we can help connect you to a group. Now again, initially these groups are gonna meet, again, it's not gonna be here on Sunday morning, it's gonna be apart from that, because again, in a healthy family, time is invested so to truly be a family, we have to invest time in each other's lives outside of this time here on Sunday morning. And so if you're in a small group, you're gonna be meeting together with some people outside of here on Sunday morning. It may be weekly, it may be every other week, but that's what we're gonna be asking you to do. And so listen, let me say a couple things. Some of you are thinking, and because this is what I think too, like I told you about like my kids and everything going on with them, you're thinking, man, like that's hard. That's a burden my plate is already pretty filled right now. Again, I get it. I know. So we said at the beginning, family is a burden. It's hard, but it's good. Well, let me just ask you. What thing in your life that is good for you is easy? Or nothing. You can't think of anything in your life that's good for you that's easy. Right? Eating healthy, is that easy? No. Is exercising easy? No. 
Is going to counseling and taking care of your mental health, is that easy? No, there is nothing in your life that is easy and convenient that helps you grow and that's good for you. And the same is true with being in deep, meaningful relationships. It's hard. It's a burden. It's not going to be easy. It's going to require sacrifice. But it is good for you. And so again, here's the deal. You can zoom in on that. It will take you to a form. If that's too much technologically for you, if on your phone, if you just go to gobc.org, on the menu, there's a button that says groups. That will take you to the same page. If even that's a little too much for you, then on your bulletin, if you're kind of old school pen and paper, on your bulletin, the little tear-off card at the bottom, just fill out that card. And on the back, there's a box that says, I'm interested in a small group. Fill out the card, check the box. At the end of the service, drop it in one of the offering boxes, and we'll get that, and we will follow up with you this week. But again, our goal, our desire is to have Lots of different options for groups. So if you are a married couple or a dating couple and you're like, hey, we'd prefer to kind of stick together. We'd prefer to be in a co-ed group with some other couples. We wanna have a group with you for that. Um, Whether you're single or even if you're married, but you're like, hey, you know, I don't know, I'd rather be in a guy's group or I'd rather be in a women's group. Christy, my wife, and I, I prefer just to be in a group with some guys and she prefers to be in a group with some girls. I found that when it's just a men's group or it's just a women's group, like that facade is able to kind of go away a lot quicker and people are a lot more open and transparent and authentic. So we kind of prefer that. So if you're married, but you each want a separate group, you want a men's group and a women's group, that's great. If you're married and you want a couple's group, that's great. Like whatever, we want to have a group for you. If you're young, we wanna have a group for you. If you're a senior adult, We want to have a group for you. If you're young and you want to be in a group with senior adults so you can kind of gain wisdom from their life experiences, we want to have a group for you in that. And so here's my ask of you. If you're part of this church family, we want to strive to be a healthy church family. And the only way we can be a healthy church family is to spend time in relationship with one another. And here is one of the primary ways that we will seek to do that. And so that's you, go to this link, fill out the form, and again, what we're gonna do is our staff, we're gonna follow up and we're gonna contact you this week and again, just have a conversation with you about, hey, what days are you available? Do you have childcare needs? You know, hear about what kind of group you wanna be part of so we can help you find a group that is the best fit for you. And listen, when you fill this out and we call you, answer your dang phone or call us back, all right? Don't make us go hunt you down, all right? Because normally, like, you know, if you've been a guest with us here, if you're a guest, and if you're a guest today and we ask you to fill out that card, here's what will happen. Um, I'll probably give you a phone call or I'll send you a text message this week, and then if you ignore that or you ghost me, I'm not gonna keep on harassing you, all right? But if you fill this out and you don't answer, we're gonna harass you. And we are showing up at your door. We're tracking you down. Okay, we got Keith who works for HPD. We'll we'll have him do whatever he needs to do to get us your address. Like, we will find you. Because this matters too much. Relationships are too important for us to neglect deep, meaningful relationships. So fill this out if you're saying, I'm in, or even if you're like, I don't know if I'm in, but I'm open to learning more. Fill this out and listen, if you're here, We want you to do this whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. Again, join one of these things is not like, it's not even becoming a member of the church. It's not signing some statement of faith saying you believe all these things. This is about you getting into relationship. And again, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you need deep relationships. Again, that's scientifically true. And so if you're not a Christian, but you're kind of asking questions and and wrestling with your faith, hey, getting into a small, this would be a great safe place for you to connect relationally with some other people where you can ask those questions that you're wrestling with and that you're going through. So wherever you are on that spiritual journey, sign up, we'll connect with you and help fit you into a group. And one last thing I'll say on this and then we'll worship and be done. If when we follow up with you and have that conversation, if, if we don't yet currently have a group that fits what you need, 
whether that's like, oh man, there, there's not really a group that fits your stage of life, or maybe there's not a group that um, meets on the day of the week because of your work schedule that you need. For whatever reason, if there's not a group that you can fit into, here's my challenge to you. Help us build it. Help us get there. Here, here's the incredible thing. This is just such a God thing. Right now, as of this morning, we've got seven different people or seven different couples who have said, yes, I will lead a group. Seven different group leaders. Of those seven, five of them didn't even attend this church a year and a half ago. Right, what that means is that when those people showed up to this church, there wasn't something where they fit in. There wasn't necessarily something for them, but they could sense that God was beginning to stir something here, that God was on the move, that God was gonna do something and say, hey, there may not yet be something for me here, but I'm gonna grab a hammer and I'm gonna grab a bucket of nails and by God's grace, I'm going to help build it. You can be excited, guys, come on. Goodness. So again, I just wanna give you that challenge of, as we begin this process and as March comes and we actually launch these groups and they start meeting, if for whatever reason we don't currently have one that fits your needs or whatever it is, help us get there. We need you. Maybe we don't have it because you're not yet using your gift of serving the church and God has brought you here for that specific reason of using your gift to help us build it. Let me extend that challenge to you. So again, I'm gonna close. I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band to come back up and we're gonna worship. But if you're here and you say, hey, this is my church home. This is my church family. We wanna be a healthy family and so we want you to be in relationship. So go to this link or fill out the card and drop it in the box so we can get connected, so we can be investing time in each other's lives so that we can be a healthy family. We pray for us.